This episode is brought to you by Tylenol, ibuprofen, a lot of Sudafed, and the fact that, yes, even though this is Monday, we are going to make it through this brand new week. Yep, it is time for a new episode of People Are Wild, the podcast that's hosted by yours truly, Kim, your friendly neighborhood ER travel nurse of a host who has interesting tastes in music, television shows, is a little under the weather, but also has a slight aversion to cilantro. Now, speaking of cilantro, there is only one place I will ever allow it to be placed, and that is in tacos. You see, I happen to be a bit of a taco connoisseur, a taco expert. It comes along with growing up in the Southwest. So there is a saying that you can't get good tacos east of the Mississippi. And I would say that during my travels from Texas up towards New Hampshire, I was able to see if this saying was actually true. Spoiler alert, it pretty much is in Alabama because that place has C-minus tacos. Sorry to people who live in Alabama, but your taco game is not strong. Texas came in at a solid A-minus, Maine is at a B-minus, and New Hampshire, you are staying there with a solid B. Oh yes, there is a taco scale that I do as of right now, I guess. Well, actually as of my last assignment. That's really the whole reason why I did travel nursing, ladies and gentlemen. I just wanted to eat tacos and get paid to do it. It's kind of sad. Or is it kind of admirable? We'll see. I've learned since being out here in the Northeast that maybe I can get good tacos east of the Mississippi. After all, I gave New Hampshire and Maine those B ratings, right? Y'all can have a good taco game. Your girl's got to admit it. Oh my god, I just said you girl. It must be almost time for Big Brother to start in my life. Oh yes, another show to be a little bit too invested in. Anyways, I will always allow cilantro to slide into a taco that is actually on point. And that's what happened when I went to a really good taco place last week in New Hampshire. Didn't think it was possible, but here we are. I don't even know who I am anymore. Actually, I do know who I am. It's not just the Sudafed talking. I am the host of this esteemed podcast, and we are going to get right down to business to defeat the Huns. No, we're going to talk about something medically related because that's what I do best. So I have lit my Alice Cooper prayer candle. School is out for summer after all. And I have been listening to Don Omar's Feeling Hot on a loop repeat for about an hour. So I feel as though I'm ready, if you're ready, to talk about how people are wild. Kirk Wolf has one hell of a story. April 10th, 2011 is a day he'll never forget. He woke up at 5 a.m. ready to tackle his first triathlon. Bless all the people who willingly do triathlons because I just can't get over the fact that there's this whole open water swim business going on. I get a little bit, I guess, anxious and nervous about the idea or about the possibility of being kicked in the face by someone's foot, ending up disoriented with a bloody nose, bobbing in the water, trying not to drown on my own blood. It's kind of one of my biggest fears. It's got to be up there in like my top five fears. Probably right next to getting into an accident that renders me unconscious, then having to be transported to the ER that I normally work at where my co-workers would have to cut off my clothes. I don't want that even in any sort of possible realm of existence. No thank you. 
But let's get back to Kirk. He had traveled from Chicago down to Miami with a group of his eight buddies from his neighborhood to participate in the Nautica Miami Triathlon along South Beach. I guess that would take that whole dad bod squad to a whole new level. Is that a thing? Did I just make that a thing? The dad bod squad? Is that like a raptor squad? Is that squad goals? Hashtag squad goals? Honestly, I spelled squad so many times in my notes, I started to think I was actually spelling it wrong. I need to go back to Kirk's story. Come on now, get focused. Make that Sudafed come through. Okay, Kirk had signed up to compete in the Olympic distance flight of this triathlon, which would include a one-mile swim, 25-mile bike ride, and a six-mile run. Needless to say, this Sunday morning triathlon turned out to be much more eventful than he could have ever anticipated. While he didn't know the exact number, the heat index was high that day. After making a short bike ride from the hotel to the triathlon setup and transition area, yeah, Kirk decided to ride his bike to the triathlon. I guess that's a thing. Obviously, I'm not a triathlete. It was clear that it was going to be a hot and humid day in South Beach. Having trained all winter and spring in Chicago, Kirk was clearly not acclimated to the heat and humidity. His lack of attention to the conditions and the humidity in particular would turn out to be his first mistake. Kirk brought his bike into the setup area, found the assigned station for all his gear, started setting everything up, and began mentally preparing for the event. Even though the air and water temperature were high enough to go without a wetsuit, he chose to wear the wetsuit he had recently purchased anyway. More than anything, Kirk wanted the peace of mind associated with the wetsuit while doing his first open water ocean swim. Like I said, open water ocean swims? Mmm, hard pass. Swipe left. The wetsuit would make him fully buoyant, and if he ever needed to rest during the swim, he could simply flip over onto his back and float for a bit. That's actually kind of nice. Just float on your back for a bit. Maybe you could do the backstroke. No, I don't think you're allowed to do backstrokes in triathlons. Or else you would just see people just backstroking, kicking each other in the face the whole entire time. Again, going into my fear. Now, going into the triathlon, though, Kirk knew his swim and bike were going to be weaker relative to the run. He had only been training for the swim and bike for a few months and had been running 10 to 15 miles a week since college. Remember, he's dad bod squad, so he's a little bit beyond college at this point. The swim was pegged to start at 6.56 a.m. The frenzy at the start of the race as the triathlon plunged into the water and worked to make the turn around the first buoy was both exhilarating and frightening. After spending several minutes in the water, it was comforting to have the pack of swimmers start to separate out a bit. With that separation, it became clear that this was not going to be an easy swim given the conditions. The waves were powerful and it was going to be a grind to swim that mile. The strength of the waves made it harder to breathe without taking an occasional gulp of salt water. While the swim was more than Kirk had anticipated, he ended up finishing in a little over 40 minutes. Kirk took his time walking out of the water, peeling back the wetsuit, showering off the salt water, and moving into the transition area to dump the wetsuit and grab his bike. Now, have you guys ever seen them do those transitions? Because I'm convinced that if Cher or like Lady Gaga ever wanted to do a triathlon, they'd be amazing and moving from at least like the stage to stage transition area parts because that's like the ultimate wardrobe change, right? They'd be so good 
Let's just be real. Now, after completing the swim, Kirk was more than ready for the bike. He had found during the preparation for the triathlon that he had enjoyed training on the bike much more than training for the swim. So he welcomed the idea of leaving the wetsuit behind and jumping on the bike. The ride itself went smoothly and he really enjoyed it. It offered incredible views as he went up and over the primary causeways connecting Miami Beach and Miami. At one point toward the end of the ride, Kirk glanced down at his arm to see whether the sun was burning his arms. While he did not see any signs of burning, he was focused on the wrong thing. He didn't realize that he passed Pow and Russ from 90 Day Fiance on his ride. No, I'm just kidding. That didn't happen. Actually, it could have happened. But would he know? Because she keeps changing her freaking hair color. Anyways, no, what he didn't notice was that he wasn't sweating heavily. And this would ultimately turn out to be a mistake his oversight. By the time he had finished up on the bike, Kirk was a little over two hours into the race and felt good knowing he would finish up with a run that he was well conditioned to attack. He had been consuming fluids throughout the bike ride, including before and after the transition stage, two bottles of water on the bike, and during the ride with water stations. As he took off on the run, Kirk was starting to feel fairly good about his ability to hit his goal to finish the race in less than three hours. What a feeling that would be. Beans believing he could have it all. Now he's running for his life. That probably was not Kirk's anthem, but it could have been. His goal could not have been, though, any more arbitrary, but it had become his target as he trained. So Kirk cranked up the intensity, knowing that his running muscles were ready relative to those that got him through the swim and bike. This increase in intensity would ultimately turn out to be a mistake. While he continued to consume water and vitamin water at the water station, since his muscles were starting to feel pretty good, he didn't really slow down to walk through the water stations. So that's a bit interesting to note in triathlons and bike races and marathons and relays and all these sort of events. You kind of walk through water stations, maybe not so much bike races, but you probably slow down a little bit. That way you don't necessarily slip on cups and you don't slip on any of the water or goo or whatever that is on the ground. And it also gives you a moment to actually take full cups of water and electrolyte replacements and fuel into your system without choking on it because, you know, you're bouncing with it or just taking a sip and then throwing it off to the side. But that's kind of what Kirk was doing. He wasn't slowing down through these water stations. And as a result, he did not consume as much water as he could have or as he would find out, should have given the conditions. So he remembers looking down at his watch and seeing that it was tracking at two hours and 50 minutes. And he realized the finish line was less than a mile away. And so he thought to himself that he should have no problem beating his goal and finishing in less than three hours. Shortly thereafter, Kirk was turning through one of the few bends on the running course, and then everything became fuzzy very quickly. The last thing he could remember was slowing down and then crouching over to catch his breath. One of his neighborhood buddies, Dan, the dad bod squad, Dan, was not far behind him on the course and noticed that Kirk was having this difficulty. Fortunately, he stopped to check on Kirk and he realized quickly that Kirk needed help. And so he took immediate action that would prove critical in saving Kirk's life. Dan flagged down an EMT that had finished attending to another triathlete about 50 yards down the course and brought him over to help Kirk out. The EMT immediately recognized the signs and took the initial steps to begin cooling down Kirk's body. 
Kirk Wolf was suffering from heat stroke, and his temperature had elevated into dangerous territory, reaching a height of 105.7 degrees Fahrenheit. The first 10 to 15 minutes of treatment for anyone suffering from heat stroke are the most critical. The EMTs took all the appropriate steps, including moving him to the shade, applying ice packs, and inserting an IV to pump fluids into his body. Dan's awareness and rapid response of the EMTs saved Kirk's life. The next thing Kirk could remember was waking up in the emergency room and screaming as the doctors had to take the necessary steps in order to keep his body alive. Kirk was fortunate. Dan and the Miami Beach EMTs were in the area where he crouched over on the course. He was equally fortunate that the hospital was just a five-minute drive away and he had some highly competent ER personnel attending to his situation. The doctors worked feverishly to stabilize his body on multiple fronts, including increasing his blood pressure, reducing his heart rate, and getting his kidneys to, you know, work again. One of the side effects of heat stroke is hallucinations. And as Kirk started to stabilize in the ER, his brain started to function again, and his mind started racing and hallucinating. As he lay there in the ER bed recovering, he did a mental recall. He knew he was in Miami, that he was 38 years old, married with three kids, and lived in Chicago, Illinois. And it took a while, but he was able to communicate most of this information to the doctors, but in one-word blocks and using nods of the head. At the same time, he was hallucinating that he had been running the Miami Marathon, not a triathlon, and he had been struck by a car or a truck as he ran through a downtown intersection. Now, this hallucination was so powerful, he could, and can still, picture the intersection and the initial impact of the car with his body. He even started thinking about how ridiculous it was that the Miami police had failed so miserably to protect runners on the course. Now, it was absolutely agonizing to sit there alone with a hallucinating brain that was racing to make sense of the implications. His hallucination had convinced him that most of his bones must have been broken, and there was a strong chance he would never walk again. To make it worse, even though his brain was racing, he was not able to put two words together. So he began questioning whether he would ever be able to talk normally again. His thoughts immediately went to his wife and kids. His relationship with them as a husband, as a father, would be forever changed. He thought about how he would never again be able to function on his own. No more walking, talking, working, kicking the soccer ball with Grace, shooting hoops with Henry, dancing with Lily, and more. And it kept racing through Kirk's brain. It was not until he reached the ICU many hours later and that his wife Amy had arrived at his bedside that his brain had recovered enough for him to start to reconcile what had actually happened. He hadn't been hit by a car. He had suffered heat stroke and fortunately he had a chance at 100% recovery. Kirk Wolf spent five days in the hospital in the initial stage of recovery from his heat stroke. He had an elevated CPK enzyme in his blood that, if not flushed and brought down to normal levels, could cause renal failure, could cause his kidneys to stop functioning. The CPK enzyme is a protein released from the muscles and into the bloodstream during a workout. After a normal workout, these enzymes elevate and the body will naturally flush them out. The normal range for CPK enzymes in the blood is between 100 to 200. In Kirk's case, as a result of his muscles being so fried, his CPK levels were off the charts, and at one point, it was registered as high as 5,800. After a massive diet of fluids and rest, 
His CPK returned to the normal range almost two weeks after suffering the heat stroke. Now, with hindsight always being 2020, Kirk has learned a bit in researching heat stroke. And one of the biggest things he learned was that he clearly checked off all the boxes that led to heat stroke. Kirk was not acclimated to the Miami climate, and as a result, the high humidity took its toll on him. Interestingly, from what he gathered from his dad bod squad buddies who spent time in the ER waiting room, is that most of the triathlon participants who suffered from heat stroke were also from the northern states and likely also trained in vastly different conditions. As well described by one of the leading researchers on heat stroke, Dr. Douglas Casa, he says that the primary factor predisposing people, especially those in shape, to heat illness seems to be a lack of acclimatizing to the heat. It's much harder for the body to cope with heat if it's not used to it, is what Dr. Casa says. So the increased intensity on Kirk's run had taken its toll. His already overheated body put more trained running muscles that he had been using for years in motion and thus exerted even more energy. 75% of which became body heat. And scientists have a pretty clear picture of what happens inside athletes as they exert themselves. They bake. Isn't that great? Easy bake legs. Muscles in motion generate enormous amounts of energy, only about 25% of which is used in contractions. The other 75% or so becomes body heat. Now these days, Kirk Wolf is determined to do his part to increase awareness regarding heat stroke, particularly for athletes participating in marathons and triathlons. While Kirk did the proper amount of training for this event and felt well prepared to complete it, he was naive regarding the impact the conditions and his resulting actions might have on his health and his life. By sharing Kirk's story, it becomes the first step in increasing awareness about heat illness. Kirk Wolf himself says, quote, I feel blessed and lucky to be alive. April 10th, 2011 is a day I will never forget. Without question, it was the most traumatic and terrifying of my life. The impact of my near-death experience has yet to fully settle in. I do know it immediately makes all the cliches very real. Life is short, enjoy every day, stop and smell the roses, take nothing for granted, don't sweat the small stuff, and more. With each passing day, and as I put distance between today and April 10th, I become more determined to turn this experience into a positive and transformative one in my life. So, with the summertime coming up, at least for us in the Northern Hemisphere, I figured, why not talk a little bit about heat illness? And I feel as though by doing this and doing this episode, I'm about to save your life yet again. So you're welcome in advance. But this episode is also partially inspired by something that is going on or about to go on on June 16th in Scottsdale, Arizona, my lovely home state. And it's called the Beat the Heat Run. Now, this is a race that commemorates the hottest day ever recorded in Arizona history on June 26, 1990, when at 2.47 p.m. on that day, temps topped out at 122 degrees Fahrenheit. Basically, everything was melting. You could fry an egg on the sidewalk without a pan. You could probably dry your hair. You can cook a meal. You could bake a casserole outside. I mean, 
mean, honestly, if you were living off of solar power, it was probably one of the best days of your life. If you were walking your dog outside in that heat, I hope you were promptly arrested for animal abuse because don't walk your dogs outside during a hot day. It why you wouldn't walk barefoot. Why are you making your dog walk on this hot asphalt? I will never understand people who do that. It's just, it's, it makes me, it, I get flames on the side of my face. Now, this race started actually in 2013 and had two people needing to be transported to the hospital by ambulances that were actually on standby throughout the whole course and didn't make a return to Arizona until this year and this upcoming weekend. It will actually be run on June 16th. So I actually did the first race on that 2013, five years ago. And unfortunately, I won't be able to do it this year to see if I can do a better time. But I do wish nothing but good luck and good hydration to those who are participating in it this year. But seeing all the emails for it filtering into my inbox, because I was a past participant, I guess, did inspire me a little bit to do this episode about heat-related illnesses. So you don't have to be in the desert or extreme high heats for heat illness to set in. Kirk was in Miami on a humid day and he overexerted himself and he found himself fighting for his life. Heat illness can happen to people on relatively mild days as well as extremely hot days, and heat illness can move through a few different phases before it can become life-threatening. So heat injuries like heat cramping, heat exhaustion, and ultimately heat stroke occur when you cannot sweat enough to cool your body down. This results in your core body temperature rising and not being able to dissipate that heat. It most commonly happens happens when people are exercising intensely in hot and humid conditions, but it can also happen in the cooler winter months, surprisingly, when you're all bundled up and perspiring more than you may realize. The biggest issue in heat illness is not the outside temperature, but the internal one. If a person's core body temperature rises to about 105 degrees Fahrenheit or 40.6 degrees Celsius, it is at a critical threshold. The consequences could be dire. You can't really live with your body being that hot internally. The body overheats and puts a strain on the heart. This in turn pumps less blood to vital organs and it brings less of the rising core body heat to the skin's surface. So you're just retaining this heat. You're baking from within. Blood pressure is affected and it can sometimes drop suddenly. Symptoms such as dizziness and disorientation are common. At a cellular level, fluid volume and membrane permeability are thrown all out of whack and cells begin to die. And these are the hallmarks of acute exertional heat stroke. This can be fatal. But let's go ahead and back that thing up like Juvenile would want us to. Where is Juvenile? And more importantly, is Jaw Rule okay? Murder Inc.? No, I don't remember. I don't... Was he Rough Riders or Murder Inc.? I don't remember. I just remember Ashanti and Jaw Rule and that's about it. And then Jaw Rule went to jail and I think he's out of jail, but I don't know if he's okay. And I'm pretty sure I saw him in a movie about being with a preacher's daughter. And I think I own it on DVD and I might have to find it and watch it after I record this. Anyways, this should go without saying, but let's say it. Hydration is vital to health. It shouldn't be a shocker on that one. Dr. Oz didn't have to tell you that with his pseudoscience. 
Oop, sorry, I mentioned Dr. Oz. I just, I can't with Dr. Oz. He's trying to use astrology in healing people in terms of like serious medical conditions. He's trying to be like, your astrological sign can help you. I just, I can't. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to just say the Sudafed just led me down that path. Anyways, dehydration underlines many medical problems, and that could be serious in and of itself. Now, heat exhaustion results from heat stress and water and electrolyte loss and ineffective hydration. Spoiler alert, you can't live without water. Now, you might think that your body can run off of tacos and tequila like I did in my early 20s, but you'd be wrong. Your body is approximately 75% water and intake and output of liquids are necessary in order to have your organs functioning properly. For most people under normal-ish conditions, daily water requirements are a minimum of two quarts in order to help maintain proper balance and efficiency within the system of the body. Ah, water makes everything better. Want clear skin? Drink water. Want to feel more energy? Drink water. Feeling hungry? drink water. Shot a man just to watch him bleed and now you need an alibi? Drink water. Reminder that even during cold weather, breathing alone releases a lot of moisture from the body and perspiration also releases moisture. Any lower intake of water results in a gradual dehydration. So again, even in the winter months, you can still be at risk for heat stroke. You can indeed get heat stroke and heat illnesses from that exertion and getting that core body temperature higher without being able to dissipate heat and being poorly hydrated. So hang on a second, because sometimes it gets confusing with heat stroke and heat exhaustion when you're talking about heat illness. So what are the differences? How do you know if you or your partner, or your family member, or whoever is experiencing heat illness. No worries, I've got you. Here are some signs and symptoms you need to be aware of when it comes to heat exhaustion. A person might become nauseous. They might start to have dizziness with the possibility of actually fainting. And you might actually be able to feel or see that their breathing rate has increased and their heart rate has increased. Blood pressure might start to drop internally, which is kind of hard to tell just from eyeballing somebody, but their color might change. They might become pale, cool, and clammy, or they might actually become slightly flushed. Now, fatigue will definitely set in, and that person will become thirsty AF with decreased urine output because that body is cranking overtime to try and balance things. There also might be horrible things called heat cramps in large muscle groups like the legs that will start and rear up, and those are something you wouldn't want to on your worst enemy. Also, the person might start to become really irritable when heat exhaustion starts up. So what happens when you start to notice that this is happening to somebody that you know, or if somebody you know starts to notice it's happening to you? What will you do? Time is of the essence and you need to get cooled down immediately. So the biggest thing you need to do is to just look around and try and find a cool shady spot in order to rest in. Replace fluids with water or a dilute solution of some sugary drinks with maybe a teaspoon of salt 
or sports drink that might be a little bit watered down because sometimes they could be a little too sugary and then they're not helping you with hydration. So you gotta start replacing those fluids as long as that person is still conscious and alert enough to follow the directions. And keep resting until symptoms subside. Now, if cramps are present, gentle stretching can alleviate that. And with prompt treatment, you can handle a little bit of heat exhaustion. You just need to be aware of what your body's saying and what your friend or your family member's body might be doing as well. Being from Arizona, Arizona's notorious for having hella hot summers, and heat cramps were something that we actually would deal with when you started going back to school in August and you're doing outdoor conditioning for your sport of choice. So a lot of places in Arizona and a lot of places that have high humidity during these summer months when teenagers and college students are coming back into their sports, a lot of coaches will start doing practices either later on in the evening or they'll move it to an indoor practice or they'll try and practice as much as they can with lighter gear. And water is always pushed on the field as well as electrolyte replacements. A lot of these programs will have a trainer there for the whole entire practice. At least one trainer is present in some way during these practices. And there's a lot of breaks that are often given. They don't necessarily need you to push yourself hard during this time in order to make sure that their players and their athletes are safe. Now for football players especially, being in full gear is definitely not something that's done, at least in Arizona. It's not done in those initial few weeks. They don't play full pads uh, until nighttime, until the sun goes down, is when they actually do more of those workouts and more of those scrimmages. And it's unfortunate, but usually at this time of year, you do hear those stories about those football players especially who end up coming to heat stroke and ultimately passing away. They underestimate the elements and they might hydrate poorly by supplementing with sports drinks that have caffeine, which can dehydrate you. And sometimes they're using different sort of powders on top of it, which can already overexert their kidneys. And then you add on the heat and it's a recipe for a really tragic situation. So a lot of times coaches have just been very instrumental in noticing the signs in their athletes and their players and being proactive and telling them to take a seat, stay in the shade, get some water, and closely monitoring these players so that they're safe and that they can continue to play in a safe environment while also being outside in these hot summer months. So heat exhaustion is what can set in during that sort of closely monitored scrimmages. For some people, though, it can get to that level where it does become heat stroke because they want to keep pushing. They don't want to sit down, coach. I don't want to sit down, coach. And it becomes this really tragic scenario again. So heat exhaustion is basically heat stroke's little cousin, and it's an annoying one at that. It's like scrappy-doo, really. So heat stroke is the bigger, badder, life-threatening emergency in the family, right? In the family of heat illness. And while heat exhaustion can be dealt with with prompt treatment, heat stroke can be deadly. Heat stroke is basically like facing a five alarm fire and you need to get reinforcements and help ASAP. Heat stroke is super scary and time is 
so critical. And you'll know something is off with someone who is experiencing heat illness. When they get to this heat stroke level, you need help like two days ago. Now, sometimes the affected person will actually become so disoriented that they progress to this level of almost being really combative with you. And going back to Kirk's case, they can actually start hallucinating. So as the heat stroke progresses, the internal body temperature continues to elevate and the brain essentially continues to bake. This can lead to a person becoming completely unresponsive and then they start to have seizures. Their heart rate and their breathing has increased. And you know, you can't really rely on skin color at this point to tell you if your friend or your family member is in danger. Skin color and temperature can vary at this point. So sometimes people will sweat, sometimes they won't, and they could be experiencing this heat stroke, this breaking point, this critical threshold. At this point, the person is just unable to cool themselves down due to this extreme heat or due to the exertion and the dehydration together that has brought on this heat stroke. It's also recognized when the body temperature goes above 105 degrees Fahrenheit, that 40.6 degrees Celsius. So say that this happens. What do you do? You got to remain calm. Your friend is depending on you to be thinking clearly because their brain is actively cooking. So they're not quite thinking correctly. You have to call for help as soon as possible. I cannot stress that enough. You need to get help right now. You need to also get that person to the shade as soon as possible and start to aggressively cool them down. Be aggressive, B-E, aggressive. Place wet claws on areas with lots of close to skin blood flow, like the neck, armpits, and groin. So really, if you can, as much as you can, pack them in with cool clothing, cool claws, whatever you can do in order to pack their pits and their parts. If you can spray the person with a little bit of water somehow, if you could fan the patient, if you can massage their extremities, this is all going to help with dissipating some of that heat. The biggest thing you need to do is get them the hell out of there. They need to be evacuated right now. Their life is in your hands until medical professionals can come. And the sooner you get that call out, the sooner they can get your friend to an ER where we can step in. So let's actually take a step back and zoom in a little bit on what to do and what to look out for when it comes to these hot summer months. And it's not just all about heat illness, but we'll go back to that as well. So as the mercury rises and the sun stays out longer and whether you're just outside enjoying a nice day or hiking on a trail, the summer months can definitely make things deadly. So here's some things I want you guys to watch out for when it comes to the extreme heat and how to survive it. If you've listened to any of the previous episodes, you know how important it is to do tick checks when you've been outside. And as I've recently had to pull my first ever tick away from myself while at work, and it was really gross, I strongly encourage that you make sure you do tick checks because you don't want something to just be hanging out on you, trying to transmit things like Lyme. You can't risk it. So you got to make sure that you're removing those ticks and that you're checking your skin. But what we haven't really touched on that also is something you need to be aware of is the things that can bite and sting you, especially now that summer has started. Snakes and scorpions are annoying. 
I grew up shaking my shoes out all the time because it was not uncommon to be indoors in the safety of what you would think your own home, and a scorpion would just decide to crawl under your bathroom door while you are on the toilet, and that is based on a true story. But as the summer is upon us, so too are snakes and scorpions, and death by a bite from a snake or death from a sting on the ankle by a scorpion are kind of rare, especially with prompt treatment. So don't necessarily be afraid. The number one thing is don't be a dick to nature. Like seriously, don't turn over rocks or stick your hands in dark nooks. Just be like me and shake your shoes out before you put them on. And don't pick up a freaking snake. If you see a snake on a trail, you aren't Steve Irwin. May he rest in peace. You are not a snake charmer. I don't think. If you are a snake charmer, if you're a herpetologic, is it herpetology? If you can talk to snakes, if you are Harry Potter, please contact me. I have a lot of questions. But if you do actually, if you are a snake wrangler, I don't think you, I still don't think you would pick up a snake that's just doing and it's thing, right? I hope not. What kind of snake wrangler are you if you do that? Do you work for the Snake Salvation Church? That is one of my favorite shows on National Geographic. I'm so sad it only lasted one season. Highly recommend. Anyways, if a snake bites you, stay calm because panic actually increases your heart rate, which spreads the venom faster. So the first thing you need to do is just remember to breathe. Just remember to breathe. Breathing will dictate your mind to stay calm. It's easier said than done, but it's going to save your life. Now take a picture of the snake if you're able to safely do so or somebody in your party is able to do so. What you don't want to do is don't bring the snake into the ER with you. My God, please stop doing this. I am sick and tired of people bringing shoe boxes with a snake me thinking it's dead, and opening it up and realizing it's not. I don't want to have another incident where I need to change my scrub bottoms because I, well, you know, you would do the same thing. Don't judge me. I don't need your judgment. What you need to do, clean the wound, remove constricting clothing from around the bite wound, bandage it firmly, and head for the nearest hospital. What you don't want to do is try and cut the wound and suck out the venom. And ladies, fellas, Don't let a guy talk you into doing that on the first date, all right? Don't let him try and suck out the venom out of any wounds, okay? Just make that promise to me. This doesn't help and will just increase the chance of infection. If you get stung by a scorpion, hopefully it doesn't rock you like a hurricane because if you're a healthy, non-allergic adult, you need to keep an eye on it and apply cold compresses to keep the swelling down and take anti-inflammatories. But if you suddenly start to feel numbness and tingling or have difficulty breathing or swallowing or talking, it's time to head to the nearest ER. Now, another thing to keep in mind during this whole summer business of summer fun, summer fun in the sun, is that getting a sunburn sucks and a really bad one can predispose you to developing skin cancer. So sunscreen and sun protection are your best friends in the summer months. And here's where I can make a bit of a correction of sorts to a previous episode. So I glossed over a big part of sun safety in my skin cancer episode. So let's go ahead and circle back around.
around in a very roundabout way. And remember that SPF stands for the sun protection factor and is the rating you are all familiar with with regards to sunscreens and other sun protective products that you apply to your skin. It measures the amount of time it takes for sun exposed skin to redden. There is another rating though, and that's the UPF, which is not a delivery service that rings your doorbell and then sprints like Usain Bolt from your doorstep. I swear that they sprint from that drop off. Like that's gotta be part of your hiring process is like, what's your 100 meter dash time? Okay, you're hired. No, UPF measures the amount of UV radiation that penetrates a fabric and reaches the skin. So you can actually guard yourself all year round with sun protective clothing. And that's clothing that's certified as having a ultraviolet protection factor, the UPF, of 15 to 50. And this clothing features tight weaves, chemical sunscreen agents, and a better absorption of sun radiation, especially dark colors, and better protection than other fabrics when wet. So for comparison, a typical cotton t-shirt has a UPF rating of about five. So if you hop on Amazon and you look up UPF clothing, you might see a few brands. Sometimes if you look a little bit closer, there's one that comes highly recommended by one of our fantastic listeners who recommends Cooley Bar and Patagonia also makes their own stuff. Good old Patagucci. Lots of brands to explore, lots of different styles to explore, but just remember this. It does not replace sunscreen. Instead, it adds another layer of protection. So you would wear UV protective clothing as well as applying sunscreen with a high SPF rating to all exposed areas of skin, wearing sunglasses that offer 100% UV ray protection, seeking shade whenever possible, monitoring and limiting the amount of time you expose yourself to UV radiation, especially trying to avoid those peak sun hours. And remember all of these sort of factors because even on cloudy days, you can still get damage to your skin. So protection is key all year round in all weather. And UPF clothing can kind of help you with that because if it is a cloudy day, you might not necessarily remember to put on your sunscreen, but if you have a UPF shirt, it does give you a bit more of protection from that UV radiation that still comes through the clouds. So again, you just need to be smart about the sun and it'll make it easier to soak up the fun when you're outdoors. No skin cancer for any of you on my watch. Not if I have anything to do with it. Another thing we need to talk about with rising temps is the rising intake of water you have to do. If you run out of water, dehydration can quickly start to undo your bodily functions, which we touched on a bit earlier. So maintain that hydration, and in the hot months, you need to almost overestimate how much water you would need. You don't want to be caught in the heat and be up a creek without a paddle. Hydration is a big part of preventing heat illness. Staying covered and resting in the shade whenever possible helps your body cool down. Doing things like wetting a bandana or a headband and having it around your neck or your head can help with, again, maintaining body temperature. Heat-related illness is preventable, but also, if it sets in, early treatment can stop bad things from happening. Now, I realize that I've been talking more about how this happens due to environmental exposure, but it can also happen with drug exposure. So this is a time when I can tell you a story from the ER. The highest core body temperature I have ever seen to date, I saw on a patient 
that got a hold of a batch of bad meth. Their internal body temp from a rectal core probe was 107 degrees Fahrenheit. We rapidly established IVs. We got lines actually into the bladder as well as into the femoral artery to start cooling this patient down as much as we could. We had to be aggressive with our interventions. We packed in ice around their pits and bits, they started actually having seizures. And so we had to adjust medications while still pushing cool IV fluids in an effort to cool down this patient while they were baking from the inside out. They were redder than any Crayola crayon I've ever seen. It was just this all out offensive front in order to cool down this patient. And they were actually comatose for three months. The prognosis did not look good. The family didn't want to let go. And actually, after three months, the patient woke up and they were moved to an outpatient rehabilitation center where they learned how to walk, talk, do activities of daily life that we all take for granted. All of this had to be relearned. And they walked out of that facility months later. In fact, almost six months later, after suffering massive heat stroke, that patient was actually in a recovery center for drug abuse. And as far as I know, they successfully completed that program. So maybe the moral of the story is don't do drugs, you guys. And definitely don't do meth. And definitely don't do a bad batch of meth. But that was the highest core body temperature I had ever seen. And that patient was extremely lucky to make it and to have the impressive recovery that they had. So sometimes even the medical opinions are wrong and families do know best. And that might seem like a decent place to wrap up this week's episode. So in doing that, it's time to play my favorite game, your favorite game, You Got What Stuck Where. Four clues, you guess, by tweeting to me on the good old Twitter at PeopleAreWild with your answer. The person most correct first wins stickers, bragging rights, and my admiration. You can take all that to the bank. It'll probably give you negative $12. So clue one, this happened to a young man who had the item stuck in them for 27 hours before seeking out medical aid. Clue two, upon their assessment, the patient needed surgical interventions to remove the foreign object. Clue three, the foreign object was definitely illuminating in terms of just how the body can compensate and adapt towards having an item upwards of 10 inches lodged inside itself. And finally, for clue four, they stuck this object where the sun don't shine. What is it about rectums that people just gravitate towards sticking things up? I will never understand that. Anyways, four clues, one guess, tweet to me, people are wild, and magic can sometimes happen. Like in MTV Cribs, when they walk into the bedroom, this is where the magic happens. Do you guys remember that episode where Mariah Carey basically took a bath in her towel while doing the episode of Cribs? I miss you so much, vintage MTV and vintage Mariah Carey. Wrapping this up, just remember, as usual, to believe in the good, practice random acts of kindness, and keep this quote in mind from Stephen Mariboli, who says, quote, live your truth, express your love, share your enthusiasm, take action towards your dreams, walk your talk, dance and sing to your music, embrace your blessings, and make today worth remembering. 
Like, hi everybody, I'm Pitney and this is Amelia from the Bitchin' Boutique. We'd love to have you explore our wonderful world of weirdness with us. All delivered with our signature humor, sassiness, and dare I say, bitchiness, general fandom, Star Wars, Star Trek, fabulous furries, horror, Pitney's obsession with eating terrible foods, Amelia's penchant for real cooking, the worst person in the world who thinks it's stupid to brush your teeth. Verity Noslin, who once cried in a Kinko's because the wrong copier was used. Trisha von Lichtenstein, a woman with a less than wholesome relationship with her car. But wait, there's more. Like everyone, we have our more serious sides, and we share a healthy dose of what makes us tick and what is important to us. Queer issues, women's politics, alternative spiritualities. Stop on by for a visit. We're sure you'll want to stay. Pitney and Amelia's Bitchin' Boutique, wherever the best podcasts are found. When you think of the Ohio Valley, you may not associate it with evil, but unfortunately, evil is something that no place is safe from. From the crimes that made national headlines to the ones that people seem to have forgotten, every victim deserves to be remembered. Join me as we go through the cases of the Ohio Valley. You can find the Ohio Valley True Crime Podcast on Stitcher, iTunes, and most podcast services. Are you a fan of true crime? Do you prefer listening to cases that you've never heard before? I'm Nikki T, the host of Strictly Homicide, a true crime podcast covering lesser-known cases right out of the natural state. Join us this July as we start our first ever series on cold cases. Did you know there are over 500 missing people in Arkansas? That's only the people that are reported. This July, I'll be covering a handful of cold cases that you may have never heard before. And of course, join us bi-weekly as I cover Arkansas cases that have fallen through the cracks. Find us on all major podcast apps, including Podbean, Stitcher, Google Play, and iTunes where you can also rate and review us. Welcome back to Universal Studios Hollywood and the American Gladiators. Now, last time we saw our gladiator, Malibu, he was flying through the air from a tremendous kick delivered by Brian Hudson. And the last time he landed, we weren't sure where he wound up. Hey, Malibu. After you got drilled by that human cannonball, I thought, hey, there is no way this guy is going to live to play another day. You're alive. You're well. What happened? Did you go to the hospital? Did you get x-rays? Well, dude, it's like this. I saw this guy coming, and I took the most excellent hit of my life. The next thing I knew, I was on the beach, taking in some cosmic rays, getting healed by Mother Nature, taking a little brewski, holding on a beautiful babe. And I'm fine today. So no hospital, no doctors, just Mother Nature, huh? Oh, I'm a child of Mother Nature. What do you expect? Malibu, you are truly amazing. He took a licking, and he is still ticking. Sweet. <laughs>